0: to 1973, Beatles vs. Stones, year by year. We're coming up on the end of this. I'm Justin Cox and I'm with Ryan Page. Ryan, how are you doing in 1973?
1: Justin! Justin! Ain't it good to be in 1973? <laughs> uh, I'm doing... I'm, I'm pretty... I'm reasonably happy to be in 1973. We have another huge year of albums from... The Rolling Stones and every single X beatle put out an album this year. Uh, the Rolling Stones put out Goat's Head Soup, which you will be representing on the side of the debate today. Yeah, and the, the Beatles, uh, the ex-Beatles put out Band on the Run, uh, Ringo. I'll let you guess who put that one out. Uh, Living in the Material World and George Harrison and John Lennon put out Mind Games, so a lot. Four, four, two white albums from the Beatles this year. Dang. So let's,
0: I think we should just put it on the table. You and I talked about this a little bit beforehand. This episode is going to go heavy on Band on the Run and Goats Head Soup, right?
1: Yeah, uh, yes. Should we Should we just like off the bat kind of
0: tackle those other
1: ones first? We're in agreement then that Band on the Run is is the best, the most memorable of these four Beatles albums
0: for me by far. I mean, and that that's in part because I knew it vividly coming into it, but it was also my experience
1: this week. I'll give you another contender. Red Rose Speedway also came out this year. You sure you don't want to pick that one?
0: No, I listened to that this week and is fine, but no,
1: I thought it was worse than fine. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like Paul McCartney put out the best and the worst album this year. I think I, I would definitively say that.
0: So let's start with Red Rose Speedway because I actually came in not knowing what it was, but then it's got um, "Live and Let Die" on it, which
1: I I obviously
0: know that song, but didn't know what album it was from. Live
1: Live and let
0: die. I I didn't realize until I spent this week with it how much Guns N' Roses completely swallowed that song and made it theirs. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you're hoping for the guns and roses version
0: uh i mean it just i didn't i didn't think i did but you know i kind of did
1: now uh, that song is is uber cheesy to me and in, in a weird way i almost feel like jet off band on the run is is a very similar song that's just better and cooler and something about live and let die for some people it's a really cool song you know, last month we talked about this John Lennon song. Putting it on the scale of Christmas songs, I guess if you put it on the scale of Bond theme songs, it's pretty cool.
0: <laughs> oh, I also don't think that Paul McCartney is afraid to be cheesy.
1: Oh no, and
0: neither are Wings. <laughs> so that's 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 kind of that's kind of built into the project a little bit.
1: They're not. They're also not afraid of being awful. Um, and so I tip my cap to them in that they. <laughs> They go full bore with it. I think I read a quote from one of the musicians that played on Red Rose Speedway that basically the summation of the quote was, everyone thought this album was awful except for Paul McCartney.
0: Wow. You know what's funny is we had a similar experience with Wildlife that came out a couple years earlier by Wings, which I also didn't like, but I also didn't hate, you know? I must have like a little more of a tender spot for Paul, Paul McCartney where it's like, oh, Paul, you didn't do your best, but you know.
1: I would have thought that that would have been me in this process. I was fully expecting to go into the Wings uh, catalog some of these albums that I hadn't listened to before and have that exact response of just be like, this is fine. It's still Paul McCartney. Like, you know, how bad could it be to put it into context? I I am not a big fan of any of those other Beatles albums that came out. I probably won't listen really to any of them ever again after this year, to be quite frank. Um, But, Red Rose Speedway was the only one that I was just like flying through and just skipping songs after 90 seconds because I I could not stand them.
0: All right. So get out of here, Red Rose Speedway. We're done with you.
1: We're done with you. Um, Don't want you. Also, just probably the worst album cover to date of any of these artists. It's an
0: atrocious album cover. We can, next week, next week, we're going to look at not only 1974 and beyond, but we're also going to look But probably going to spend a lot of time looking back. Like Ryan and I are both excited about that. And maybe the album cover conversation will be something we, we get to in that. Yeah,
1: I think so. I think they'll have to be part of that conversation. All right. So
0: that album's gone. We'll get to band on the run in a little bit. Um, Mind games is nowhere near as offensive as uh somewhere some somewhere sometime in New York City. Sometime in New York City, yeah. My my brain has been actively purging it from my head (laughs) ever since last week. It's it's nowhere near as as offensive or or bad as that. But in being less offensive, it's also less memorable, and it just kind of I don't know. I, I, part of me wonders if I didn't do my job good enough about like really getting into the nooks and crannies of it, but I, I, it never grabbed me the whole week.
1: I don't think there are any nooks and crannies of it. I think it's like a smooth stone you find on the beach (laughs) that there it's all very surface level. And I will say I, I am imagining like two years from now, I probably will remember sometime in New York more than I will remember Mind Games, even if it's just to remember things I didn't like about it. Mind Games. I mean, really, to me, that's the thing that you can say about all of these albums like Ringo and Living in the Material World. I think those were like hit albums when they came out. They had, quote unquote, hit songs on them. But I think all of these albums are pretty much forgotten. No one is really repping for these. I know there's George Harrison fans that I love George Harrison that are probably repping for living in the material world. But just if we don't have much to say about these albums is that they are so forgettable. They're not really good. They're not really bad. They're just forgettable.
0: Yeah. Every single one of those people that are representing uh, living in the material world is going to tell you that all things must pass is 500 times more important.
1: Well, I I'm, I read some critics that were saying, you know, there, there were some people, one of the quotes that I read was, well, if you, if you just, put this in your CD player with All Things Must Pass and you put it on shuffle, you won't be able to tell which songs are on which. And I just disagree with that. I feel like living in the material world uh, is not, it's a a move in the same direction, but it's not of the same caliber or in the same galaxy as All Things Must Pass.
0: It doesn't hold up as, it's not as strong as All Things Must Pass. The songs aren't as strong, but I could see myself kind of, not necessarily being able to differentiate between a lot of the music. And I I think weirdly something, and this isn't necessarily a compliment, but because I think the experimentation and stuff that people like Paul McCartney and John Lennon did, even though it's like a real strikes and gutters situation Mm -hmm. is that like George Harrison came out with like a, a very, there's like a George Harrison sound and voice coming out of the Beatles that the others were like all over the map. and like his, it seemed like kind of like George Harrison did his George Harrison thing. Don't even get me started on on Ringo. I mean, he makes three completely different albums. but
1: can I can I read you a quote from a review that really sums up my feeling on material world? Yeah. This is from Tony Tyler um, who was writing in uh, New Music Express. He said, Uh, it's pleasant, competent, vaguely dull and inoffensive. It's also breathtakingly unoriginal and lyrically, at least turgid, repetitive, and so damn holy I could scream. Uh, I have no doubt whatsoever that it'll sell like hot tracks and that George will donate all the profits to starving Bengalis and make me feel like the cynical heel. I undoubtedly am. So I feel like that really speaks to all the things you're, it it is competent and pleasant um, and inoffensive. And the, those things are all true. But the second half of that quote, I also find to be very true.
0: Yeah, all, all those things being true could also amount to it being an easy thing to forget. And that really feels true about the Lennon album, too.
1: I just feel like these albums in this time period that we're entering in, thank God for Goat's Head Soup. And thank God that we are sort of coming to the run, the end of this run with these people, because we're entering a musical era that was really a sort of lost in the wilderness kind of time period that you you how, on the one hand you have these arena rockers who are just like going bigger and bigger and more um egotistical bigger solos bigger shows and spectacles on the other hand you have these sort of aging 60s pop stars and a lot of this stuff just represents to me like they just have no idea where to go musically like mind games is is Sonically, in a way, it's like John was like, Well, I'll just write Plastic Ono Band again, but you can't do that. George Harrison, you can't write All Things Must Pass again. You already did. So I feel like it's a knock on that album. To say, yeah, it fits in with this other album. It fits in if you wanted it to be, you know, the B-side. Do you think Mind Games is like a
0: a quick overcorrection to what he did the previous year?
1: Like, Yeah, absolutely. To be yeah. fair to John, it seems like there was a lot of stuff going on in his personal life right now. He was being actively harassed by the FBI in the United States and was also going through a split with yoko ono at this period in time so i'm almost willing to like cut him some slack on this one
0: i actually am pretty certain i'm gonna spend more time listening to mind games if not like in the week ahead then definitely in the years ahead like i know it's something i'm I'm gonna come back to because i had this recurring feeling of like i keep stepping away from like the speaker or like pausing what i'm listening to to do something else while i lis- listen to this album and that could be partly the al- album's fault if i keep doing that but maybe it, I, for some reason i felt like it was my fault whereas like i think that's a little bit of like a uh, some debt of i think i owe to john lennon whereas like <laughs> i'm not i'm not going back to some of those older ringo albums and stuff you know
1: are you I going back to this
0: ringo album This Ringo album starts on the penultimate track and ends on the final track for me.
1: Ringo is graded on a curve. And this album is, I guess, leagues ahead of his first two albums. So we'll give him credit for that. You know, that song Photograph and It Don't Come Easy. I think they were both released as singles prior to this album coming out. But even even despite those, I I still (laughs) am not a fan of this album. To me,
0: it's like Ringo Ringo's proper solo album. The other two really just don't feel to me. They feel like a guy coming out of the Beatles, figuring out what to do and doing two very different things that are like putting on costumes. This at least feels to me like a Ringo album. I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. And then I got to It Don't Come Easy, which I, I hadn't looked at like the song titles and immediately like recognized it and immediately, immediately liked it. Like It Don't Come Easy is a, I'll take a, a Groovin' song like that. I like that song. And then I like, because I looked at my like Spotify feed when that was playing, I saw the title early 1970 and just was like, something about that song title was like, it feels very very aligned with this podcast project we're doing it was like absolutely wow like two three weeks ago i was thinking a lot about early (laughs) 1970 and talk like diving in for an hour and a half about like what the beatles were doing the same year that they put out let it be and then you get this this final track two minutes and 21 second song by ringo that is literally one verse about each of them the final one being about him and i honestly i loved it i think maybe because it gave me exactly what i wanted because we're doing this
1: you know he's got, got no cows but he's got a whole lot of sheep a brand new wife and a family and when he comes to town i wonder if you will play with me
0: Those are like lyrics. You have to know what those guys are doing. You have to know those band members to know what he's referencing in those lyrics. And I I felt like it was especially made for me and maybe you right now while doing this.
1: I feel like the song is undercut a little bit by the fact that I now know that it was written a couple of years. It was written closer to 1970 than 1973 when this album came out. And the song is so interesting because it has a sort of longing for like wanting to play with the Beatles and, you know, not really being certain in the future what was going to happen. But then when this album comes out, all four Beatles are on this album. They're present on this album. Paul McCartney is on this album. John and George are both on this album. So that kind of undercuts some of that for me.
0: To me, it doesn't undercut it. To me, him, like, if he's writing those songs in that moment, we, we talked about like Ram and McCartney and and Ringo has some like insane quote about how he's like sad about the music McCartney's making, like kind of hardcore Burns. And obviously McCartney was like away and, and a little bit distanced from them. And like the last lines, like I wonder if he'll play with me in reference to McCartney. I know he's gonna play with me in reference to Lennon playing with you and me in reference to Harrison because he have been playing with him a lot and then his final lyric is when i go to town i want to see all three i
1: go town i want to see all
0: three i don't know it's beautiful and he references Dude, yeah. like he references the farm he references the sh- the sheep or the ram he references cookie
1: this album has a murderer's row of session musicians on them, which I think speaks to people's love of Ringo. But you have the entire the entirety of the band. You have uh Mark Boland from T-Rex is on here. You got um like I said, the three Beatles plus Linda McCarthy McCartney, uh Harry Nielsen, Martha Reeves, like all, all kinds of people all over this album. Klaus Vorman, who just was there no other basis in like the early 1970s than Klaus Foreman? He had it locked down. That guy must have been super likable, just like go with the flow or something. I want to talk about Goats' Head Soup. And I'd like to I'd like to get into the meat of our discussion of sort of goats head soup versus band on the run. And I'd like to kick it off by saying it's really great that the Rolling Stones have passed the torch of outlaw rock and roll band to wings.
0: You're out of your mind. With that. That's a, <laughs> They're the that's... band on
1: the run, baby. <laughs>
0: they can call themselves the band on the run, but they, they can call themselves the band on the run, but they're not singing <laughs> star fucker, star fucker, star fucker, star fucker, star at the end of their album.
1: Whoa. This is an N17 rated <laughs> podcast. All right. Well, so where are you at with Guts Head Soup?
0: The sort of consensus is that the Rolling Stones have a four album run of like, like, unassailable albums, which those four albums are unassailable. That is their run. But to me, I I, w- I would not say that this album is like, I would never give it a 10 by any means. Like our last two guests did on, on pitchfork. And I wouldn't like protest their, their ratings for those, but this is a five album run for me. And I put this on it. I love goats. Head soup. I, I I count goat's head soup among those five years. And I see, I get it very clearly is not only a step out of that little like groove they were writing during that period of time, but it's also a little bit of a step downward too, but we, we didn't want them to keep making those albums. They had to do something slightly different. And this is like the exact thing I would want them to do. That's right. That's what I feel about it.
1: Well, what do you think when you say the thing that you want them to do, what is that thing?
0: In style and, and, um, type of music and approach to like American roots music and stuff. They're doing very similar things from, from beggars banquet to let it bleed to sticky fingers to exile on main street, like sticky fingers and exile on main street are very different in the way they're packaged and the way they kind of like channel, like the human personality and energy. There's a way different energy to them, but they're still doing that. I think you even said this last week, like if the rolling stones did that three more times, it'd be like, get the fuck out of here. We've, we got it. We, we get it. Like it's, we're lucky that the Rolling Stones went into the late seventies and into the eighties doing different stuff because I mean, you're going to, you're going to fail and you're going to fall out of like relevancy in, in your ways, but like, you're kind of going to also do more interesting stuff. And I think that on, on Goat's Head Soup, they do, they do really interesting stuff on Goat's Head Soup to me.
1: So I'd like to to read a, a short passage from friend of the podcast, Lester Bang. Uh, this is from his uh, an article that he wrote in Cream called 1973 Nervous Breakdown, talking specifically about goat's head soup. Let's go. Another, another danger is that no matter how excellent you continue to be, people will just get bored with you. Not anybody's fault particularly, but the Rolling Stones, my God, how many different ways can you recycle Chuck Berry riffs? How many different phrases can you use to talk about bawling before you have to resort to outright grossness? And when you reach that point, which means you've begun to lose the battle, how long do you think you will last trying to come up with new variations in grossness and obscenity until it becomes merely depressing? Uh, Most artists do their best work in a compressed period of three to five years or at most 10. The Rolling Stones lasting 20 or 30 years, what a stupid idea that would be. So (laughs) uh, Lester Bangs did not live to see himself proven wrong, but I feel like he's talking exactly what you're saying, which is that, You might think that you wanted Exile on Main Street again, but you really don't. With Goat's Head Soup, I would not, I personally would not call it a five album run. I feel like this definitely begins a drop off in quality. And I think after this album, the quality just falls like straight off of a cliff. And that is not how I would describe Goat's Head Soup. But I would say it's a noticeable decline, even though there's there's still some great stuff here. It's a very memorable album. It's better than something you know 95% of any other bands have put out. I would describe it as um, certainly flawed.
0: Yeah, I think that's you can't argue against that, really. I think there's something beautiful about like this band at its peak that from what I gathered last week, like, I don't think I fully respected how much that, how much, I mean, it's obvious that like it was Keith Richards French Villa. But I don't think I realized how much it was like Keith Richards' album in a lot of ways to kind of dictate its like sprawling nature and everything like that. And that Mick Jagger actively kind of wasn't super down with it. And it kind of feels like whatever change Mick Jagger wanted waited until this time. And so you kind of have this like Keith Richards gets to to like sort of put his thesis forward and then Mick Jagger gets to put his forward. And there's something beautiful about the like individual nature of this band with that
1: I see that that's one way of looking at it I can't help looking at it looking forward and sort of interpreting Mick being like this isn't the direction I wanted us to go and then this album is the direction that he wanted to go and the albums that they continue to make I have to assume are the direction that Mick wanted to go and that's not a direction that (laughs) is super exciting to me like some of the stuff on here or the things that they would do eventually it's like okay, you don't want to do Keith's down home rootsy Delta blues thing. Okay. I get that. But the thing you do want to do is like kind of disco funk stuff. Nah, thanks. I'll pass.
0: That's true. That's also a band like becoming the old people in a younger person scene. But yes, but like, here, here's something I'll ask. Like I get that it's different. I get that it's a different thing than sticky fingers and exile, but like, what on here is super jarringly different?
1: Um, You know, that's a good question. I don't know that, I don't know if there's anything that's like, if you took any one of these songs and put it on Exile or Sticky Fingers, you know, they might be not a great song on there, but I don't think you would be like, whoa, where did this come? This is really from out of left field. So I think that's fair. I feel that it's a pivot.
0: I feel that it's like a step toward what comes next but it's not it's like good that we have goat's head soup you know like I think goat's head soup really serves its purpose and I, I don't know if this is fair to say but like I'm a real like song person like I love mm-hmm. like just like the sort of hook and melody and art and story of a song you know mm-hmm. and my love for exile on main street is sort of in a lot of ways me suspending that It's like, I love Exile and Main Street. Basically, it gives me enough of that, but more, but it's a different experience. It's, it really is a vibe album. And this is kind of this like, ooh, I get this version of the Rolling Stones again. Like, Dancing with Mr. D is, is, is its own like kind of hammy version of the Rolling Stones playing rock music. You get to 100 years ago i put that up with a lot of their songs i love that song and every, and then when you get to like the call me lazy bones part at the end like uh, it's 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 as good as almost anything they do to me, call me
1: This album to me, it just feels like they're missing their fastball and some of the stuff that they could get away with on some of their other albums. Like we've talked about Mick's affected singing and how he sounds really mannered. And there's times on this where it it's just really obvious. Like he just, he doesn't pull off whatever kind of uh, phrasing or thing that he's doing. Even It's usually like right at the start of the song. You're like, what, why are you singing like that? And then he'll like stop.
2: Went out walking through the wood the other day And the world was a
1: laid for me Or the other example I would use is like The opening riff to the song Star Star It's like there's there's Chuck Berry riffs And then there's like literally the riff to Johnny B. Good Or rock <laughs> and roll music You know what I mean? Like Yeah Baby It's like a pitcher going from throwing 99 miles an hour to throwing 94 miles an hour and 94 miles an hour is still pretty fast but all of a sudden they're getting shelled a little bit more and they're giving up a few more homers and so i definitely 100 years ago heartbreaker angie um those those songs are are definitely like classic stone songs that are pretty pretty unassailable although again, Mick has some weird singing choices on there.
0: I don't know. The thing with Star Star starting like that, I would wager that the Rolling Stones did that version of ripping people off from, from A to Z. They didn't start doing that here. They did that the whole time.
1: I, I will give you I will say that my sort of journey with this album was uh in a lot of ways similar to my journey with Ram, where I wasn't as familiar, I definitely not as familiar with it other than the the big hit songs than I was from the previous Rolling Stones record. So I was kind of going, when I when I first listened to it, I was a little bit disappointed and I was a little bit more down on it than I thought. And I gave it some time and I gave it some more listens. And I think I really came, there's a lot to be discovered on this album. There's some stuff that's just kind of whatever, and you can kind of forget about or throw away if you don't want it, but there is a lot of stuff to be discovered on this album.
0: I I like the idea that there was pushback from the label for Angie to be the single, and that Angie was like a smash success. Angie, Angie, when will those clouds all disappear?
1: That all being said, like Star Star is a good example. I actually was not familiar with that song um, until listening to this album recently. And I really wanted to not like it just again, because of that very obvious Chuck Berry rip rip off and just the sort of overly grotesqueness of it. And they're just ripping so hard that I was just like, what am I supposed to do? My feet are moving people. He gets nasty in those lyrics on, on star star.
0: And I absolutely love that song, but I will say I own like the plastic jewel case CD version of that that i bought in college and like listened to with my friends getting drunk and in like dorm rooms (laughs) that thing is actually right now like in a cardboard box with a bunch of other cds up in my parents attic which i'm sure i'm not the only millennial with that story who just streams music now and has a bunch of cds up in their parents (laughs) like storage space (laughs) or whatever but that song kills yeah
1: There's a deluxe version of this album that has um, a live show from from them playing in Brussels, and it's actually some of my favorite live recordings from the Stones that I've heard. Um, and it has that song on there live, and has has a, a good amount of the, this album as well as um, some some good exile songs on there. And so anyone who wants to hear a good Stones live performance, which I feel like. They can be kind of hit or miss. If you, if you spend as much time as I do on YouTube watching old concert footage of bands from the 70s, the Stone stuff, sometimes it's like, eh, not bringing their A-game, but those recordings are really enjoyable.
0: That's a real service of you because I do want to hear that. And honestly, actually, like something I want to praise you for throughout the duration of this podcast is that you've consistently listened beyond the like regular releases and heard some of the like unreleased stuff and live stuff and like extended versions and to me i'm i'm at max capacity on the actual albums themselves and i really have like not even allowed myself to go past them
1: you know i i I mentioned this with with our guest rob last week is that i'm always hunting through that kind of stuff because i do in in my musical history some of the stuff that's closest to me and most beloved by me is I, i found in those areas is like demos or is like a a live performance of a song and sometimes stuff like that can really unlock a song for you that you didn't previously get or really enjoy and then you hear a different version of it or a live performance and you're like oh now i get it I want to make mention of the fact I, I, the th- I thought I had on the song Winter, which is actually pretty pretty good song as well, um, is apparently uh, Mick is credited as playing the sort of main just like jangly, rambly uh, guitar part on that song. That's actually Mick playing yeah. the guitar. And it's fine. It's, it's the kind of guitar rhythm that literally anyone could come up with. and then Mick Taylor comes over the top with this just soaring lead guitar riff and i was just thinking <laughs> about like how like how spoiled you have to be to, to be a guitar player it's just like da, 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 da. and then like have a a guitar player like Mick Taylor be like okay i can do something with this
0: well i think i think that hovers Soup pretty good. It is, I think some people would consider it the end. Some would consider it the beginning of the end. I would consider it, they, they, they're they going to consistently give you hit songs that you're going to still hear in concert. But as far as full album goes, this one's on the bubble, right? You can either say it's among the classics or you could say it's after the classics. But I don't know. I also, I bought it at a for, formative time in my life and I'm, I'm really attached to it.
1: Yeah. I think that is what the, this album is a sort of transition album and it's like, what's next. And it does kind of feel like the stone sort of pondering, like what, what's this all about? What have we gotten ourselves into? And what comes out the other side of that is just sort of like, I don't want to say naked capitalism, but it's certainly not more introspection.
0: The I mean, the Rolling Stones seem pretty, uh, It seems like the naked capitalism side of things, like they're not afraid to, they're not here trying to like bat down that accusation. They're say whatever you want to say about them. They're going to do whatever they want,
1: right? I definitely know this. Rolling Stones do not give a shit what I think about them, which so I tip my hat to them for that. (laughs) Good, good call on that, Rolling Stones.
0: We can say what we want about like, maybe like, Mick Jagger's fastball being 94 instead of 99 with this but when he gives you stuff like that right out of that bridge that's magical moment that's magical Mick Jagger moment
1: well it's just like a. I mean he can still get up to 99 he just can't do it consistently and I feel like the first chorus on uh, Heartbreaker is also in that category of Mick throwing his 99 mile an hour I was reading that apparently these lyrics are not based on any particular incident, even though they describe a kind of like specific story. And Mick sings it with such emotion and sort of fury in his voice that it's almost like everyone just assumes like, this must have been something that happened in the news. Right. Yeah. He's got to be responding to something because it feels so real, his anger. It's also insane that the song is called Do 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 yeah. parentheses,
0: heartbreaker. Inexcusable. That's just terrible.
1: I've never understood that title, but shout out to Billy Preston who's playing the clavichord opening lines of that song.
0: <laughs> sending, sending you thoughts and prayers, Billy Preston. Thoughts and prayers, BP. Okay, so I'm here with David Wild, who is a very busy man at the moment. David, I talked to David when I did a podcast about Jackson Brown called After the Deluge, and he had followed Jackson around interviewing him before his album around around the time of his album I'm Alive. And David's written for Rolling Stone among many other publications. He's a, been a writer for the Grammys for 20 years, including this year, and we're recording this on Friday morning and the Grammys are this Sunday. So David is a man who's like not sleeping much right now, and he's a real saint for being here with us. How's it going, David?
2: Great, and I just wanted to, I wanted to explain A so I could be name dropping all day, but I'm as far away from everything as I can get, but you're still hearing like equipment and scenery being moved around.
0: Yeah, he's in a big room where a lot of stuff is happening,
2: um, wearing a cool Dodgers hat and. I'm in a big room off a much bigger room near a much bigger room, and the room you will have seen in the Grammys Already, I'm, yeah, I'm as far as I can get from that so that you're not hearing music and stuff. Beautiful. I hope you enjoyed the Grammys, and I hope you will enjoy the Grammy salute to the Sounds of Change tonight on CBS, hosted by Common, with performances by John Fogarty. Well, it's night. I'm not going to run through the whole thing.
0: So I'm going to ask you in just a second, Beatles or Stones in 1973, who you got. Uh, Real quick before that, did you write the booklet copy for 40 Licks?
2: Is that right? I did write the, I did write uh, 40 Licks liner notes which was one of the greatest days of my life because it was like uh, uh I think it was Thursday and I got I had recently interviewed Mick for something and he was he's fantastic he's you know he's Mick Jagger he's pretty charming but he called and said uh, David Love and I was like David Love <laughs> I was like and I'm I think I'm straight I'll call and ask my wife but I was like <laughs> I was, I was kind of turned on. I'll, I'm man enough to admit it. And he goes, I wondered if you could do us some liner notes by Friday. And I was like, sure. And I, then I realized Friday is like in a few hours. And then I also thought, okay. And he, he said, let's talk money. And I realized Mick Jagger negotiates his own fees. Like that's, that's that London School <laughs> of Economics or whatever kicking in. And he wasn't offering that much. So I... Feeling the need to negotiate, said, uh, "Okay, but I'm going to need a signed copy by you and Keith, and I'm going to need tickets to any show I want on this tour." So I got the tickets pretty quickly, but it took me like ten years at the Grammys to get uh, get Mix and uh, Keith both signed up. Dang, in, that is some good TV.
0: negotiating. That's the that's the right way to go. Yes. Let's go to 1973 specifically, when they put out Goat's Head Soup. Individual Beatles members have a smattering of albums.
2: So Beatles or Stones in 1973, who you got? You would have to be a goat to pick the Stones on this year. And you're t- hearing this from the guy who wrote 40 Licks. I am all Beatles all the way 1973. I think it ain't even close because Goat's Head Soup is one of my least favorite records. It is, it is when the drug stopped working, For the Stones, like literally uh, Exile on Main Street, it's like the apex of the drugs working. And then Goat's Head Soup, it's like the decline. And I don't even like it as much. Like I love it's only rock and roll or really like it's only rock and roll. But uh, Goat's Head Soup is a patchy record with a few masterpieces, but one or two masterpieces. So I and 73, in addition to anything else, and you can talk about everybody, but it's my favorite Beatles so well I'm sorry my second favorite Beatles solo record ever is Band on the Run so I don't see how you can call it for anybody but the Beatles
0: yeah do you do you think that your feelings about Goat's Head Soup are are they exist within like a continuum of the four albums
2: that came out right before it like they're they're graded against. those no (laughs) I do not Justin because you think I'm older than I am Goat's Head Soup was the first I think the first Stones album I heard and even I was like, Angie's kind of cool and a uh, heartbreaker. I love, I guess, love. But I knew it was patchy. I knew that's a that's a patchy drug that record. That's like right off the bat. You can sort of hear them trying to be the Stones. It's the first record where you hear them sort of like doing what they sort of do a lot of these days, you know, sort of try to sound like the stones. Uh, but it's not I, I still I went back to it when they put out all the extra tracks recently. And like Jimmy Page is, you know, suddenly, if Jimmy Page, six months earlier, walked into a broom closet, that's on there, everything they tried to do to make goat's head soup great, but it ain't and I I'm not it's not like I don't like the stones later. That's when I started and I love black and blue. In fact, when Mick, Mick, my friend Mick called and said, write the uh, what I write the liner notes, I had a night to write it. And I put on black and blue, which was my childhood favorite, which is no one's favorite, I guess, but I loved it. That's what I wrote the liner notes to 40 licks to so it's not like I'm like, Oh, no, it has to be, uh, you know, exile or it has to be uh, let it bleed or anything like that. Not at all. I just don't like this record. Sorry.
0: Yeah, that's fine. I actually see what you're saying where it's like the Rolling Stones trying to sound like the Rolling Stones. That that I could see how like dancing with Mr. D feels that way.
2: Kicking Well, off. It, it's it's literally like a, a bad sequel, like a Porky's three to sympathy for the devil. It's that's literally what it is. It's it's it and it is sort of inert to me. Heartbreaker is the one where I feel I feel it. I just and then, but it's only great for the first half when it's sort of about socially conscious but like sometimes mick runs out of steam with his social consciousness song and it sort of then becomes i think the last part seems to be more personal but the first part of it i really am feeling his sort of you know inner city uh marvin gayness of what he's doing on it uh but yeah i'm not saying it's not good it's the stones you know so it's it's good and great intermittently but i will say i think it's a pretty great year for the beatles solo i mean uh yeah that's what what I. what do. do
0: you what do you love about band on the run and what and also second question to that is if
2: that's your second favorite Beatles solo what's your first all things must pass is my first okay. and it's actually connected to 73 because then when george does living in the material world without specter right you i think all things must pass everyone always uh you know sort of shits on the production overproduction by phil's Sp- Specter. I'm not the biggest Phil Specter fan. I'm not the biggest Wall of Sound fan. But weirdly, all things must pass. I don't know. I don't want to give Phil much credit because I think he's a psychotic, well, he's now a dead psychotic murderer. It's not but, not not an unpopular opinion. Yeah, but I actually think the production on that record, the epicness of it, I think he must have had something to do with it. I think it came out of whatever tension between Harrison and him. The McCartney record is is that's really where I came into the Beatles. I bought an eight track tape with my mother bought me an eight track tape of band on the run i fell in love with it and cut two years later on the same trip where linda mccartney told me and ordered me to marry my now wife uh literally what? on that yes that's, that's that's i don't know if you have time for that story but that's true yeah I uh, want that. oh well the story is i went on the road for what ended up being like a month with the mccartneys because first we met in colorado I think, and then we flew and went to Argentina, and I did a South American little tour with them, which was the greatest thing ever. Except you don't eat a lot of beef when you're in Argentina with the McCartney's, but I could, you know, tofu steaks were fine. But at the end of it, we came back through New York, and uh, linda for some reason being the wonderful woman that she was she was amazing she took a liking to me like and she goes she took a picture of me for my books she gave it to me for nothing and she goes do you have a girlfriend and i'm going i just met a girl actually and she's going to be in new york when we were there and she goes i want to meet her so ask her and this is like my fourth date with my wife ask her to come to soundcheck at giant stadium or wherever it was uh and then we'll have lunch so she and my wife's not even a music person still but now she knows more but she came out, watched McCartney do the best check in the world because he doesn't even do his show. He's always done a whole other show for soundcheck. And then we had lunch, veggie lunch. And she literally, Linda pulled me over. She goes, do you think I know about marriage? I went, yeah, I, I think you know about marriage. And I actually came from a broken marriage, so I don't know much about marriage. And uh, she goes, marry that girl right away. And I did. I literally, one of the reasons I married so quickly was I was like, well, Linda McCartney told me I should marry her. So, and we're still married 26 years later. So my wife's not happy about it, but I did well. And, uh, but the reason I mentioned all that with Ben on the run was during that same trip in Argentina, there was a- after a gig, I was in a bus with Paul. Uh, I think he was running to a plane to go to stay at an estate. And we were, I was with the band going to go with the band to stay at a hotel. Cause that's how they would sort of base themselves on tour. But, uh, Paul said, what do you think of the show? I go, it's great. And he goes, any requests? Like jokingly. And I think I said, I would like more band on the run and less Beatles. He said, what? Because that was around that he hadn't been that long that he was doing so much Beatles. But I said, I just got to say that as my generation, I want to hear I don't I love hearing Beatles, but I want to hear more of the band on the run, you know, songs from that era. And that's probably that's probably music to his ears. Well, I don't know. He was surprised by it, but yeah, I guess so. Uh, but I mean it. Like I, so that's why. Like, I, yeah, I came in on the Ringo album. I love, fell in love with him because of that record, which uh, everyone did. I think that was that was one of the biggest successes of the early Beatles era. I mean, you know, the one with everybody on it, and it's a great record. Richard Perry, beautiful production. Ringo just flowering as an artist, absolutely great. So yeah, that was a big, big moment. And Ringo has a new book. I worked with him on. I helped him with and wrote the uh, forward to, and uh, I still talk about that record. Uh, I didn't know him back then. I only met him in the all-star era 30 years ago. I've only known him 30 years. uh, (laughs) Yeah. That that feels,
0: that feels like the proper start to Ringo's solo career to me. The the previous two I had a a tough time with, but this one. Well,
2: they're weird. They're actually interestingly Mm -hmm. weird. Like, Quincy Jones doing, you know, standards and country. I actually think they're interesting. But Ringo is where he gets his sort of template. Well, that is amazing.
0: The song Band on the Run alone, it's it's really three songs in one song. And what has been really interesting to me to go year by year with this is that is like to really learn how panned the, the McCartney album and the Ram album and the first Wings album like he was basically striking out with critics until this
2: red rose red rose freeway was was badly reviewed as i believe see this is all this is all before my bar mitzvah i was pretty young for all this but i remember mccartney was not like a he was sort of a little bit of a non-critics darling at the time and it's all crazy but i remember being at a beach house in new jersey my parents i think about to break up and hearing my love and just like yeah, I actually never made this connection. My whole wife is writing that song with, you know, Linda and Paul, who were the greatest couple ever. That's what she said to me, which is so weird. She said, do you think I know about love? <laughs> I was like, what, who says that to you? No one's ever said that to me again. That's incredible. Your marriage is blessed by a McCartney. Oh, well, the crazy part about that is, look, this is my phone. You can see that's my boys with McCartney. Dude, Have I told you this story? I don't know if you know this crazy story. No, let's but, let's close with that. Tell me about it. Okay, so Grammys, the first year Paul came and did them in forever, maybe the first time ever in person that he performed, he comes backstage. Linda's gone now. Unfortunately, sadly, she was a great lady. He comes backstage. And even at the Grammys, everybody wants a picture with McCartney. And he's not, like, walking around in the hall. He's, like, in his dressing room being Paul McCartney my kids and my wife are coming to see me backstage and paul grabs my wife like goes well like actually goes i need a picture with those boys and my wife is like even she's been around a few people but she's taken aback and i mean it was such a nice thing so she takes this picture of paul and my two sons our two sons who were might not be here if it weren't for paul mccartney and linda mccartney and i'm like she comes back then to see me and i'm like with Stevie Wonder or something like and I'm like she goes you're not going to believe what just happened and then she shows me this picture which has been on my phone ever since as my whatever you call it my setting uh it's it's my screensaver yeah I didn't know I said either that's the spirit of Linda telling him compelling him to do that or he thinks they're the Jonas Brothers who I think (laughs) were on the show and they're two Jonas Brothers and I never knew and I never asked until we did a 60th anniversary show. That's three years ago. And I went to Chicago to interview Paul for the special. And we're on this. It's like one of those things where you get McCartney. It's not like you get an hour always. I had 15 minutes on the side of the stage as he's about to go on. And I'm set up with a crew. And I have literally that time. And he walks in. We ask, I ask the questions. He gives me great answers. And we have one extra minute <laughs> before the this music is beginning to start up. He's about to run out and i go i gotta ask you one question i never knew either this is you thought that they were the jonas (laughs) brothers or it was the spirit of linda and he tears up he starts tearing up he goes david don't make me cry before i go on stage and i went oh my god it's like it's just so that's why it's never gonna leave my phone incredible definitely so maybe that's why i'm voting for the beatles over the stones mick didn't pay overpay me for 40 licks and paul gave me a wife and kids he did call him. you he did call you David Love though. I'd I'd i, I, I kill to be called Justin love, love by Mick Jagger. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty I, I stole a little turned on saying it. I, <laughs> I it did not get the same Keith. Yeah, Keith did not call me Love. But uh <laughs> fact, okay. that's another story, but you'll have to have me back on to get that. I have another story with Johnny Depp and Keith that you wouldn't believe either. I got oh my stories. God. I, I love – why. why do you have a podcast and not me? This is fucked De- up. I have zero answer to that question. <laughs> um, I
0: absolutely love talking to you, and I look forward to talking to you again. And I thank you for for fitting this into what is surely a hectic week. Where where can people find you, and where can people watch the Grammy special tonight
2: on Wednesday? the Grammy special is on CBS, uh, like the Grammys. You can still go and watch the Grammys a few days late, so that we get those late those plus four ratings or whatever. Nice. Uh, but yeah, CBS tonight, the Grammy salute to the sounds of change. Hosted by Common, please check it out. At Wild About Music at Twitter. Thanks so much.
0: Have a good hectic few days. Enjoy. I look forward to watching. I will.
2: Thank you for having me on. I love your shows. Thank I got you. a feeling. A feeling
0: so a thing I did not know coming into this one that was fun to read about, especially coming on the heels of all like the tax stuff and like the recording in France, is the idea of the Rolling Stones recording that album in Jamaica. I did right. like I-, I didn't know that going into this. That's that's wild. Like why 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 is that not as much of a wild story as Exile?
1: Is it just cuz the album's not as beloved? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. You know, we talked last week about the south of France or the the French chateau being sort of like part of the story of Exile, but you would never know it just from listening to the album. Same sort of thing here and I don't know, maybe somehow it's just less sexy, less desirable, I don't know.
0: Yeah. I don't know. It's an interesting little factoid. But then like as a good transition to the Wings album is that that one's recorded in Nigeria. Yeah. Weird. Like these two albums coming out around this same time.
1: I I did not know that about Band on the Run. Two interesting anecdotes about that. or The one that really sums it up to me is that apparently Felakuti is a famous African musician um, who is... Awesome. For those who don't know, go check out his albums with Ginger Baker. They are so much fun. And he basically accused Paul McCartney of coming to Africa to steal their music. And Paul McCartney was like, no, 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 come to the studio, check this out. And he's like, listen to this. We didn't steal anything. <laughs> <laughs> and Felikutu is basically like, okay, you're right. Like, to me, that story is hilarious. So it's because it's like, wait, why did you guys go to Nigeria then? if you were gonna so like have let that influence you in such a little way
0: but then they got there and they hated it like it didn't go well it was bad but that's absolutely hilarious that
1: He's like, don't worry, here, come listen to this stuff. The other funny story to me is that you know, part of the reason why it didn't go well is because um I think EMI uh is the production company that they were working with, and they like, yeah, we have a studio in Lagos, and the McCartney's were like, Great, we're gonna go there. And then they got there, and the recording studio was really crappy, it didn't have good equipment, and, and so, anyways. They got back to England after they did their recording sessions and they were going through their mail and they found a letter from EMI that was sent before they left saying, "Don't go to Lagos, there's an outbreak of cholera." Wow. And they just never got it.
0: And I think the drummer and maybe the bassist quit before. And so right. so so Paul McCartney plays all the instruments on it, which Honestly, it kind of lends itself to a thesis that I think both you you and I have for a lot of this kind of stuff is that you need obstacles and imperfections to make a thing good, you know? Like mm-hmm. uh, maybe everything went perfectly to plan on mind games, but what it amounted to was a thing that both of us forget. Like maybe this being in a crappy studio in Nigeria where Paul had to play those instruments and all that stuff. The song the the songwriting of the song band on the run and the rest of it is clearly a huge part of it. But like maybe that lent itself to the greatness of this album.
1: I mean, I have to say, as someone who absolutely hated the first Two Wings album, I think it must have been a huge boon to him to have the those two members quit. Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously they were not uh, helping his cause. If I ever
0: get out of this one sounds like a full band. Like I, I right. never, I would never would have guessed that, you know, like, like I get that Ram and the McCartney solo album are Paul playing a bunch of things. I get how that works. Right. I just didn't think that about this one. And especially the song band on the run, like this is a, this is a conversation about the album band on the run, but the song band on the run, as much as I just advocated for, for goat's head soup. And I love Angie and I love hundred years ago. And I love, a lot of those songs, Band on the Run is like the masterpiece of this year, that song. And a jailer man and sailor Sam was searching everyone for the band on the run,
1: band on the run. In the vein of masterpieces being created by essentially one person. This is one year after 1972 Todd Rundgren's Something Anything comes out, which is a double uh, a double album uh, that three of the four sides are totally only Todd Rundgren playing all of the instruments for all of the tracks. And so um, I don't, I'm not saying Paul McCartney was inspired by Todd Rundgren, but what I am saying is sort of if Todd Rundgren can do it, Paul McCartney can do it as well. So Uh, I agree that I would not have guessed that this was not a full band effort, but at the same time, it doesn't surprise. If anyone could do that kind of thing, Paul McCartney could. Um, I think side one of this record stands up with pretty much any of these albums that we've listened to.
0: Band on the Run is a beast. And then Jet is your... We get that Jet is kind of cheesy, but...
1: I love it. Jet, to me, that is an all-time... It's a sunny day, I'm popping Jet in the CD player, I'm getting in my car, I'm rolling the windows down and I'm going like five miles over the speed limit.
0: It's true, you want to chant it. Like you want to throw your fist in the air and like like, like yell out with those people.
1: Yeah, I, I, I am a, a big fan of Jet and that has been a soundtrack for my life. Jet.
0: Sounds to me like you like Bluebird more than me though.
1: I do like Bluebird. That's a good I like singing that song to my children. Um it's obviously kind kind of in the same vein as the song Blackbird. It's not in the same galaxy as far as belovedness, but I, I do I do like Bluebird. That song is sung a lot at my house. My wife sings that song a lot. And
0: then you want to sing us some miss vanderbilt? Oh.
1: Say huh. <laughs> um that yeah that one's a little bit annoying but I don't I don't know what it is with Paul McCartney is that sometimes sometimes his annoyingness just gets away from him. That's that, I guess that's like all I can say about some of those Wings albums where it's just one groove away like on a gear and when it's not working it's just the teeth all grind right off but when it does work and it clicks you're just like this is like pop music royalty what else could you want
0: even while being weird he can be almost the thing that is like a nursery rhyme that a kid can sing along to i think he kind of like created some situation where he can just kind of do anything he wants and it's gonna he's gonna be either super precious or extremely off-putting and weird. And, And it's all versions of the same Paul McCartney thing.
1: Yeah. I do wonder in this period of Paul McCartney, like this album obviously turned out to be a classic. I just wonder if he was surrounded by like, yes, men. And that's the downside of like recording stuff with mostly yourself and like random session musicians and your wife is like, who's the person that was telling him no. You know, and I wonder I wonder if we couldn't have gotten an even better, really the best version of Paul McCartney, if he could have someone, you know, a George Martin or I don't know if Brian Epstein was this person necessarily, but someone that he respected musically, obviously, John Lennon is another great example uh, that could that could, you know, kick him in the ass from time to time and be like, this isn't good enough.
0: I think we established that uh, like you you made some point, I think. A couple of weeks ago, that like, it's just so clear that these people made each other better. All of them could have used that. Used that from each other. I actually like your alternative universe where they make four more Beatles albums, but one is helmed by each member of the band.
1: I, I have to say that at this point in time and in, in the music, I, I I vehemently think that that was would have been the best case scenario. If things had to have like changed and they couldn't just continue on as the Beatles. That that to me it would have been creatively for all of us. I don't know. Maybe we don't get some of the stuff that we get. Maybe we don't get as angry of John or, you know, as indie bedroom Paul as we would have gotten. But I, I still feel like that would have been best case scenario. I, I
0: like I like that thought exercise.
1: But you know, uh, maybe we don't get banned on the run or
0: Jet. So if you're trying to think of post Beatles solo like member releases what's the more beloved
1: lasting one? Is it this or All Things Must Pass? For me or in general? I don't know. Maybe both. I don't know. I think in in general, like in the popular consciousness, I think All Things Must Pass is kind of viewed as the definitive post-Beatles album. I feel validated in this opinion in that a lot of the writing, music writing I was reading around these albums that came out this year, a lot of them, if they were praising one of these albums, it was almost always the, the sort of line was, this is the best post Beatles album since Plastic Ono Band. Like there was a lot of references to that album. And so to me, it's it's either that or Band on the Run. And at that point, it's it's almost more of like a mood thing.
0: Yeah, that was actually a bad omission on my part I should have included plastic Odo in that
1: yeah, I, I I probably would have done the same thing if I had not just recently sort of re fallen in love with it but you know what I mean like I don't know that i would ever be in the, the the mood to like listen to those two albums back to back like they, those are very different moods.
0: On the back half of of uh, Band on the Run, I loved Picasso's Last Words. This like song and and, and he has this like weird kind of little drum part that comes like a minute in. It almost seems like it's like a studio mixing error. Three o'clock in the morning,
1: I'm getting ready for bed. Pre- there is some good percussion on this album. Bluebird, that's another thing I really like about that song. In the chorus, there's just like some some like cowbell and some triangle, and it's used in a really fun and tasteful and memorable way. So I think there, that, that's a big plus in this album's favor is that the percussion is, is consistently interesting. Drink to me, drink to my health. You know I can't drink
0: anymore. A fascinating thing to me, like, the members of the Beatles are now like no longer on like the home turf of like the, the cultural moment. Like they're definitely not, they're existing within a different thing that's happening in the seventies. And like you said, it's like, it's bands like Led Zeppelin. And then it's songwriters like they're, I mean, they're ping ponging around doing different stuff. And it's, it's a weird thing to see after going like seven years of like, I mean, they were like the bellwether. They were it.
1: Well, and there, there's just a trying, even to like an album like Band on the Run, which we're in agreement is is a really fun, good album. It just seemed, you can just see Paul trying. I know that doesn't quite make sense, but what I mean by that is there was there's a little tidbit that I read where it was like around this time, Ringo had a song that was like became a hit song and John sent him like a cheeky telegram that was basically like, I hate you. How could you? Also, would you mind writing me a hit song? And in 1966, the Beatles weren't thinking about how do we write a hit song? Anything that they wrote was a hit, you know? And now all of these guys are sort of like, what do we do? You know,
0: it sucks.
1: They don't know how to stay relevant. They don't. John has been lashing out, casting about for any kind of way to stay a part of the cultural moment and i think around this time he's realized how fleeting that is and sort of just like abandoned all those things that he purported to care about and all of a sudden doesn't anymore um and so that's that's the sadness of this time period and it's natural like people are going to move on like same thing with the rolling stones like you can't do this stuff forever you can't be the greatest band in the world forever but that's the there's a gracefulness to it that I don't know that the Beatles always inhibit. And the other thing I would say is like the person who's honestly probably most existing in that frame, that world, and is like most culturally relevant is George. It's true. E- even though Band on the Run is probably the most remembered of this batch of albums this year, like at that time, George was the one that was the cool guy he knew all the cool people he was this super philanthropist who people really respected and his album was like greatly anticipated and i and at the time was also well received and i for me i don't know what your experience with this is but that that is kind of surprising for me to learn given when i grew up george was always an afterthought
0: i had an understanding and respect for george like weirdly through my friend Ryan, who was like this, like super technically savvy kind of, kind of, he was never going to write you a great song, but he's going to make every song better type person, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and it weirdly, I don't know. I project some, I, I think I've always projected some version of respect onto George because of that, which I think it probably has fed into this podcast where it's like, I've always understood how George makes so many of those Beatles songs better, but I'm going to allow myself to like critique quote unquote George
1: songs. We're critiquing everything, baby. We're not holding back. I guess in my mind, when I would talk to people about the Beatles, which is not nearly as often as it might seem, it was always just a conversation of like, Paul or John and when you know it was like well who had the better post Beatles career Paul or John and it wasn't we weren't thinking about George in that way and now I I realize I understand that in the 70s in this in 1973 that was that was not the case uh, from a popular standpoint and and it's really if nothing else it's like Paul McCartney's career is very similar to the Rolling Stones and that he's just sort of outlasted a lot of these I mean it's true that's kind of morbid in some ways but even prior to like george's passing like he just somehow managed to kind of cling on tightly and i don't know that certainly in 1972 you wouldn't have guessed that We talked earlier about the album, the sort of feeling that this is the Rolling Stones being pushed in the Mick direction and where Mick wants to go. That's the feeling that you get from this album and from reading about it. And obviously the cover kind of speaks to that because no other Rolling Stones album cover has been just Mick Jagger. It's true. Um, But the other thing I was going to say about it that reminds me of our conversation last week is when we were talking about Yoko Ono, and it's sort of like, is this art? Is it not art? And you're like, well, she's making people uncomfortable. And I'd say that's what this album cover does for me. Yeah, it's, it makes it's, me uncomfortable.
0: It's it's hideous, but I remember it. And that yeah. that is kind of in keeping with what this album is. It's like, even I, I think regardless of whether it's in the like five album run classic thing or whether it's like, like solidly out of that, I know that it has a little bit of like a gasp of like attention seeking to it, you know? And that's what that covered. That covers part of that.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I, when you say attention seeking, like it's hard for me not to go straight to the song previously known as Starfucker.
0: Yeah. That's very attention seeking, you know? And if you're 21 years old and you buy that at borders books, you're going to be pumped off it while you like get to like <laughs> play foosball with your friends in the garage
1: man you're painting a very attractive picture right now so next episode in 1974 night we're going to title it 1974 and beyond we're going to sort of do a really quick like spaceship level blast off touchdown of the rolling stones and all of the beatles members basically the rest of their careers um, and probably just jump around a lot to, I don't think we're going to spend this. It would be too long of a podcast to talk about all the things that we didn't like. We're going to so, speed,
0: we're going to speed through some decades.
1: We're going to speed through some decades and then we're going to have some fun with some categories and things, um, uh, of looking back on the podcast and, and looking back on the albums that we've talked about and then, and some touch on some specific songs and, and do some, some really big picture thinking and, and kind of summation of what we've learned. We've received
0: some fun emails throughout this process. And if you have a, a feeling about the question, Beatles versus Stones, who you got, feel free to email. Ryan, what's the email?
1: The email is versus Stonespod at gmail.com.
0: Yeah, and maybe if it's very smart or funny, we'll read it.
1: Yeah. Get get your questions in. It's a weirdly, it weirdly like
0: wires your brain in a certain way to go year by year with this kind of thing. Like the idea, like I was thinking earlier today about the idea of me going to my stereo and putting on like, can't buy me love. It's kind of, it's unthinkable to me right now because I haven't listened to that I listened to that two months ago aggressively and haven't listened to it at all since then.
1: I got the strong urge and indulged in this week. I listened to between the buttons for whatever reason. And it was a similar sort of thing where it's like, this is really good, but also weird. <laughs> yeah,
0: I can't, I can't wait to do it. That's I was excited to record this one so I could be like, okay, I've done my thing where I've just stayed week by week. Like I, I have only listened to whatever albums we're talking about for that week. And now I'm excited to, like, take those shackles off and just go like, steamroll into the 80s and all the way back to the 60s. If
1: if anyone has any latter-day material by these, these groups that they are particularly fond of, that they want to, like, draw our gaze, our eye of Sauron on, I'd also hope people will email or tweet, tweet at us those things, because... I'm not going to be digging through a lot of the nineties albums to find the good stuff. Cause I don't know that there is, but if you feel like there is audience, uh, please, please alert us. Well, okay. See you next year. See you 1974.
2: The grand finale. Well, baby.